All right, guys, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. Today, I am joined by Brad Palumbo. You may know Brad from seeing him on television or Twitter. He is a policy correspondent at the Foundation for Economic Freedom, a contributor to the Washington Examiner. Uh, we had a fascinating discussion on a lot of different areas. We started off by talking about what the takeaways are from the most recent elections, which were in Virginia and New Jersey. Uh, and what that foreshadows for the upcoming midterm elections in this following November. We discuss what the hell's going on with this multi-trillion dollar build back better plan that Biden and the progressives are trying to ram through Congress. What's in it? What's its chances of passing? We talked about the hypocrisy of these so-called environmentalists on the left and some of the negative externalities of a lot of this green energy technology. We spoke about the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, which is a crucial case. It's actually one of the most significant Second Amendment cases to ever come before the Supreme Court. They're currently uh, deciding this matter. And uh, this could potentially have far-reaching consequences in stopping places like New York City and L.A. from denying the right of their citizens to easily attain gun-carrying licenses or permits, which is a big issue. You can't get these licenses in these cities. We spoke about student loans, what the conservative case would be in, in terms of student loan forgiveness. We talked about whether this country is really headed for a national divorce, as some commentators on, on the left and the right have, have both alluded to. Uh, and much more. It was a really excellent conversation, and uh, I think you guys are all going to enjoy. This is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Thanks so much for being with me. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, wanted to start off here. So we, we had a uh, the most recent sort of political litmus test was the, the elections that took place in Virginia and New Jersey. Obviously, next year will be much more indicative of, of where the political atmosphere is. You had young kid win. You had the lieutenant governor. Uh, a Republican. You had the Attorney General, a Republican win. You had New Jersey get awfully close with the Senate election there, and this is New Jersey, the blue, the bluest of blue. You had a truck driver who spent like 130 bucks, upset the New Jersey Senate candidate. So shocking results. Do you think it's a CRP stuff? Do you think it's failures of the Biden administration or him looking weak? Do you think it's COVID fatigue? What do you see as sort of the narrative from that if anything yeah i think the short answer is all of the above but also none of the above a hundred percent it was a bunch of different things and also we should point out that like off-year elections are always very or not always almost always very rough for the party that's not in power so like 
Barack Obama, the first midterm after he became president, Republicans swept. Donald Trump, after he became president, and then in the 2018 midterms, Democrats swept. It is a very normal pattern that once a president is elected, their base gets a little complacent and doesn't show up as much to the next couple elections in off years or midterms. And the other side gets all revved up and shows, out, shows up in droves. So while it doesn't account for flipping a, a, what is basically a blue state at this point uh, in Virginia, flipping their governor's race, it does tell us that, that it was always going to be tough for Democrats. And it's going to be tough for Democrats in 2022. Uh, in terms of what motivated this Glenn Youngkin upset, I live in Virginia, so I've paid more attention to this one than what's going on in Jersey, for example. It's a bunch of different things. Yes, there is backlash from people about education as one of the top issues. And some of that is based in the fact that Virginia school systems have had critical race theory, really far left ideas about gender and America being inherently racist and white people being inherently guilty and racist and all these things have been taught in Virginia schools. And that's a big problem. And there's been backlash to that. But even bigger is the fact that Virginia had one of the worst and longest COVID school closures from the government against the science. And it really devastated Virginian parents. It wasn't a super partisan issue. I mean, Democrats, minorities, all sorts of voters have were really angry about schools being closed. The other big things um, uh, one is the economy and inflation. I mean, inflation for the average family, inflation has cost them $175 a month, according to Moody's analytics. That's a lot of money and people can feel these things. And while it's not as if, you know, Terry McAuliffe is directly to blame for any of that, it becomes a bit of a stand-in, Democrats versus Republicans. And because the president right now has terrible approval ratings, he is a Democrat, he is contributing to many of these problems, uh, they blamed the Democrats for them, and, and to some degree, rightfully so, and they showed up and made their voices heard. It also, and we can get into this if you like, but Youngkin really somewhat cynically, but also quite masterfully put together the different parts of the, the coalition and voters and base for the combination of different issues that possibly is a roadmap for future GOP candidates. Well, so what were the things that he did differently than uh, you know, traditional Republicans? Well, so the first thing is how he handled Trump. So Trump endorsed him. He was like friendly to Trump. So the base, the dark red voters in rural Virginia would show up for Yunkin. But he wasn't like campaigning with Trump. He wasn't talking about Trump. He was simultaneously low-key embracing Trump and also keeping him at arm. He could get Trump's but yet without closing himself off to suburban moderates who really don't like Trump in the suburbs of Virginia. So that was a very delicate balancing act, mm -hmm. but it was also pretty masterful. The other thing that he did was he ran on a fairly conventional platform of tax cuts, deregulation, school choice, lots of like free market, like GOP, conservative orthodoxy stuff, yet also leaned into new culture wars about critical race theory, about like transgender bathroom policies and these kinds of things that rev up the populists and the new uh, kind of Trumpy conservatives. So he, he had these policies that appeal to, you know, traditional center-right, pro-business, pro-economics, um, moderate voters, and the kind of free market base. Yet he also had this culture war element that played well with the populist right. 
Uh, and so he really kind of thread a very difficult needle. He didn't take positions on that many issues. And for example, his campaign website barely had any positions or issues pages on it, very sparse information. And that was partly strategic, that he was really trying to be many things to many people. Uh, and it seems to have worked. Yeah, and, and that's kind of going to be the thing going forward is, is going to be interesting to see is so obviously Democrats want to keep bringing Trump into everything. Then the Republican basically can't exactly dismiss Trump because of, of the appeal and popularity he has, but at the same time has to sort of shift the focus of whatever he tries to do with respect to the actual you know issues uh, that they're running on. One of the things that happened since was was this whole and I saw you write about it was the uh, the infrastructure bill got passed. That's, I guess. Biden's probably what first legislative achievement, particularly of any significance. Second, he got a big COVID stimulus bill. He got the second. That's right. He got the COVID stimulus, and now he got this. Um, and there was there's been a big gap between the two, right? And so this one finally got through. They've been working on it for months. It was basically only possible because of what 13 Republicans in the House who who voted for it because the progressives weren't going to budge. The progressives wanted it tie any vote on that tied to a what they call I guess the Build Back Better plan. What is the so now the infrastructure thing is passed? What is the Build Back Better plan? What what do people need to know about it? It's what's it going to cost, and and do you think it's going to has any chance of passing, particularly in regards to the two moderates in the in the Senate, Cinema and Mansion? I certainly hope that Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin kind of stay strong on this and kill the bill because what the Build Back Better agenda is is essentially a Green New Deal light. It's trillions of dollars. All the price tags are honestly kind of made up. Like Biden's now claiming it's 1.75 trillion, but that's really just because of budget gimmicks and how they count things. So don't focus too much on the numbers. Is it 3.5 trillion? Is it 1.75 trillion? The truth is, you know, if you actually look at what it will cost when all these new social programs are extended and made permanent, which they almost certainly will be, there's there are few things as permanent as a temporary government program, right. as Milton Friedman said. Uh, the true cost is going to be four or five trillion dollars. It's going to be much bigger than the inflation adjusted cost of FDR's uh, New Deal. And what is in it is everything from massive subsidies for electric vehicles, which mostly go to wealthy people, uh, and everything in the Green New Deal, including the AOC's pet project, this idea of a civilian climate core where they'll spend billions basically making up jobs for environmental activists to get union benefits and high wages doing planting flowers or whatever. Uh, and, and then it's got everything in there from like government child care uh, to child tax credits. And importantly, on the tax side, it's got corporate tax increases. It's got individual income tax increases for high earners. It's got a tax on smokers, on anybody who consumes um, nicotine products. A very Not weed though, right? Increase. No, not right, marijuana. Right. I guess it's not, but, it's not uh, federally legal yet. But yeah, I mean, that that's uh, there always seems to be favorites when it comes to those. those uh, the vaping those products things. are covered, though, right. in this tax hike. And it's hmm. just interesting because Biden had said he wouldn't raise taxes on anybody earning less than $400,000. But most smokers and most vapors earn a lot less than that. And their taxes will go up in this behemoth package. So there's so much in it that we could spend all day breaking it down. But it's that kind of stuff. It's massive social spending, welfare expansions, lots of like crony capitalist subsidies for energy companies and 
uh, electric vehicles and all the stuff that will not make much of an emissions dent, but fuels the kind of AOC progressive fever dreams um, and things that will go to their well-connected industries and supporters. It's a nightmare, Bill. It's just a giant big government boondoggle. And um, I'm hoping it doesn't pass. I actually think that passing the infrastructure bill now that it's going to be signed into law and they can't hold that hostage over people right. may doom the Build Back Better plan because the moderates don't have to vote for it because right. they already got their infrastructure bill. Uh, so I'm hoping that's the case. Right. They seem to, to have lost a lot of their leverage when it comes to that. I mean, Manchin is small. You have to, aside from harassing them in bathroom stalls, uh, doesn't doesn't seem like there's a lot of pressure that they can, which is disgusting, by the way, but doesn't seem like there's a lot they can do to pressure them because they they prove that they are willing to support something that's, uh, you know, moderate. Uh, and they were very skeptical about adding trillions and trillions of dollars in debt. And it's worth mentioning as well. I mean, you got what 40% of all the U.S. dollars have been printed in the last year and a half. We have inflation, which is basically triple of what it's supposed to be, of how it's usually run, which is about 2%. We're looking at like 5.4%. On the CPI numbers, which themselves are, are pretty fudged up, um, you got just mass trillions and trillions of spending from, from the COVID. It's like, where does this party end? You have to wonder. Like, they must not believe that there's any consequences for spending, basically to infinity. And and you know, at some point, the music's going to have to stop. Uh, with the electric vehicles thing too, I, I saw. I don't know if you saw this, but so Musk brought up that it's what for only. The subsidies go for union electric vehicles. Is that right? Yeah, only companies that are all union labor, which just so conveniently rules out Tesla. Mm -hmm. They so don't like Elon Musk. They don't like him anymore. Right, right. I mean, he don't get me wrong. He's such a fascinating guy, but he's absolutely nuts. Uh, but he, the Biden administration is not a fan of Elon. Right. Well, he's also a guy who doesn't, you know, sing the the, the party tune. Right. He doesn't fit into their box. Uh, he doesn't fit in any box, really, which is why he's so unique. And so he will be, uh, yeah, I mean, all, all, all of a sudden, they're, they're for unions again, um, when it suits them. <laughs> uh, with respect to the, the green, what is it, the, the climate core thing? So this is, this is going towards people who are going to be, uh, I don't know if they've even spelled it out, but people who are going to build windmills and, and that kind of no, stuff. Not even that. It's, it's just like Peace Corps, but uh, environmental. It's actually more like FDR had these make work programs, these like mm -hmm. civilian core where they put you to work. The, the government creates jobs. Of course, they don't talk about the fact that that money would have been spent in the private sector on more productive jobs, but they create jobs to do like environmental. It's basically like, do you want to get paid to be a, a sun a sunrise activist and do mm -hmm. like climate advocacy and environmentalism and stuff all on the taxpayer dime what's hilarious about this multi-billion dollar initiative is that literally the democrats themselves admitted that it won't reduce admissions rhode island senator uh, sheldon whitehouse who's a big climate change hawk and really has supported a lot of this green new deal stuff he was asked about the civilian climate court which is aoc's pet project and he said, you know, I like it, I support it, but if we have to choose, we should put funding on stuff that will actually reduce climate emissions, that the core won't actually make any difference in the climate emissions. And he just admitted that. And I'm like, um, then what is the justification? It won't create jobs because that money has to come from the productive sector of the economy and it isn't even going to reduce emissions. So it's literally just this giant government program for people like AOC to go work and get 
$15 an hour in healthcare benefits, courtesy of the taxpayer to plant flowers or whatever. Right, right. And, and hug trees and, you know, maybe have protests in front of forests or something. Um, it is interesting, too, I think, with, with the environmental thing. So none of these, there's no, there seems to be no impetus from the same kinds of people to, uh, you know, say, pursue nuclear energy, right? They, they have no regards whatsoever for natural gas, which is the thing that's primarily responsible for reducing the emissions of the United States. So we're down 20% relative to 2005. That's almost all because of natural gas. They hate that. They hate your, they hate nuclear windmills are just absolute garbage. They, they, they have environmental costs as well. And on top of that, they produce basically nothing. I mean, you, you can never really store this energy, especially from these windmills in a economically viable way. Uh, at least not for several decades. It kills birds. It kills endangered species. You have to flatten out entire uh, land areas in order to install these things. So like, what, what is it exactly from your perspective that they want? Is it just a situation where they want to just stop modernity? And it doesn't make sense that you could be all about the Green New Deal stuff and then not support the things that actually reduce carbon emissions. Well, it's like AOC's former chief of staff literally admitted that the Green New Deal isn't really about the environment. It's about fundamentally changing the economy. All right, right. It should really be called the Red New Deal because it's about socialism. It's about government control of the economy. And that's like the, the Civilian Climate Corps would make no difference in carbon emissions, but it would allow them to shift millions of people from the private sector employment to working for the government. And that really is their goal, is to exercise more and more government control over the economy. Uh, and, and environmentalism is, is really just a convenient way to do that. There's a uh, there's an old saying in, in Europe where they, they call the green people, the green party people, uh, uh, watermelon, because they're, they're green on the outside and red on the inside. <laughs> and it makes sense. I mean, that, that seems to be the thing. And, and another thing worth mentioning, so I'm, I'm in Los Angeles, uh, you, we, we spoke about this a little bit earlier, but like LA, San Francisco, these cities that are filled with people who proclaim themselves as environmentalists are some of the filthiest cities in like the industrialized world by far. Like how, so you guys are environmentalists, but you're okay with like the streets looking like absolute garbage and filth and human feces and syringes and trash and homeless campments all over the environment. And there's, there's, there's no, um, you know, real impetus has changed that. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're environmentalists. I feel like we shouldn't even let, let them call themselves this, right? It's like, yeah, these, these should mean, be the cleanest practice. cities. If you guys, this the, 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 the so-called environmentalists per capita are probably, you know, the highest in places like LA and San Francisco. And yet, you know, there are third world countries I've been to where they're cleaner than some of these cities. Yeah, it's just funny because they don't really practice what they preach. Uh, you and I were chatting about this before we started recording, but I'm from the New England area and Massachusetts in particular. Um, and Boston is one of the wokest cities, right? They Massachusetts is very blue. They elect Elizabeth Warren. Um, it's actually one of the most racist cities in America. And this is widely documented mm -hmm. how much historical racism there was in Boston, including like redlining and all sorts of government policy, but also how like casually racist people are still on the streets and such. And it's just funny because it's like, these are the woke people. This is mm -hmm. one of their bastions, mm -hmm. yet it's consistently rated one of the most racist cities in America by like mainstream media outlets and other analysis uh, that look into that kind of thing. And I just, I find that, I mean, it's bad. So I, I think that's bad. But it's also kind of funny, like mm -hmm. that these people just don't practice what they preach and they don't have to. It's the same like when you see AOC at the Met Gala or all these politicians breaking their own mask mandates. Mm -hmm. 
I think they know that the mainstream media will cover for them. And so they really just don't put a lot of effort into being consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point as well. If you see someone like Gavin Newsom, who lives in, has to live in Sacramento to his chagrin, um, but that's what you have to if you're governor. And so what does he do? He sends his kids. So Sacramento is, I think, considered the most diverse city in America in terms of proportions of Asians, Hispanics, white and blacks, basically like 20 something percent each. So it's pretty much as diverse as you can get. And so he sends his kids to a basically all white school. You have to go out of your way to find a school that's like 90 something percent white. Uh, The neighborhood he lives in is 90 something percent white. It's like you literally have to go out of your way in order to find. And it's not like you know places with with uh, a lot of ethnic diversity or bad areas. No, there are plenty of good ones. But you just choose to only be in these these sorts of places. Um, you know, and, and I just saw this morning too the uh, Nancy Pelosi officiating the uh, Ivy Getty's wedding that kind of made the rounds on Twitter today. And it's that's just that's the mentality. It's just like you know, go, go look at the ethnic diversity of that wedding, right? And I guarantee you, this person is like is the most woke you know, typical trust fund baby, you know, only hangs out with this people of her echelon and, and of, of her racial demographic. Um, and, you know, you just, I just read like a couple, couple lines into it. And it's like, oh, we met at the UNICEF ball. And then we went to Capri. And it's like, these are, these are the, uh, the party of the people. And they look down on other people in middle America. And it's like, you guys only hang out with yourselves, you know? And they think that the rules only apply to the little people. Right. That's what bothers me more mm-hmm. than any of this is, politician after politician we've all seen the stories right getting caught taking their mask off when the cameras are off or going to events and so i know gavin newsom right at the french laundry but mm-hmm. he's literally one of hundreds yeah they're all doing dozens mm-hmm. right they all do it and they just they don't care they they think that the special people gathered in dc and state capitals need to run society because they're educated and they're the experts and everyone else needs to just listen to them because they know better how your life should be run than you. And I just fundamentally reject all of that. I, I think that people know what's best for them better than anyone else. You're the expert in yourself, your own needs and interests. And so as much as possible, decision-making should be decentralized, not centralized. But of course, power corrupts and corrupt people are drawn to power. So corrupt people are drawn to politics and people who want to run other people's lives and exploit power systems to their own benefit. And that's how we end up with people like Nancy Pelosi and also, you know, some people on the Republican side that are swampy as hell. Absolutely. Um, It really is a broken establishment and it's becoming more and more like, oh, I think it's the capital and the Hunger Games, right? You see the comparison of like all those rich elites in this dystopian society gathering. And then you look at the Met Gala and all, it's all the woke mm-hmm. elites surrounded by the masked servants right, right, in right, black. Right. Um, and it's like, we really are getting closer and closer to that. And what's hilarious is those are the same people that will then go uh, complain about inequality. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, you saw that the Met Gala, you saw that I was, the the um, analogy I conjured up was the um, that Democratic fundraiser with Pelosi again, where like everyone's seated, that, seated they're not eating, so you, they can't even use the excuse of, oh, their masks are off because they're eating. All the rich donors are in this like retreat, and then all the servants with their masks, faceless servants, you know, uh, abiding to their every need. Uh, and it's just like, you know, and, and then, the, yeah, they'll turn around and tell us, oh, no, but we're the ones who are looking out for them. Right. We're the ones and they're following the science. Yeah. Yeah. They're following the science. So let's talk about the cultural war stuff then. So you 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 deviate, I would say, from um, conservatives on some of these cultural war issues. Where do you think 
conservatives are, from your perspective, are on the right track, should be fighting culture war issues? Which ones, where do you think that is a waste of time or is deleterious for them to focus on? Yeah, I think sometimes um, I would describe myself, it's interesting, as center right culturally or on social issues. I would say I'm like in the middle or center right, but I'm not like people have a caricature of me as a socially liberal, fiscally conservative libertarian. And that's not really the case. I mean, I'm definitely more on the right side of things. I just don't get the some of the more right wing, very online culture war stuff. For example, like Big Bird. People got so upset over Big Bird over the weekend, tweeting like Big Bird said something about I got the vaccine and it mm. kept me safe or something. And it's cringe. Yeah. I think it's cringe and I would roll my eyes at it. But like if you're really spending your time on the weekend and some people were like tweet threads about Big Bird government <laughs> propaganda, blah, 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 it's like you're overreacting yeah. and you have no right to call like campus people snowflakes, right? Like you're just, mm -hmm. sometimes there's a tendency to get so mad over these very small cultural things. Um, a good example is like kneeling for the national anthem. I would not kneel for the national anthem. I don't really like that form of protest, mm -hmm. but ultimately like it is free speech and it is not the end of the world. More importantly, like I just think that the right wing very online and conservative media echo chamber can get way too it's not that i think they're wrong on all these things as much as i just think they wildly overreact and and sometimes they'll spend things like they'll get outraged over some celebrities comments and like they're not talking about school closures across mm -hmm. the country because mm -hmm. of big government COVID authoritarianism that are literally depriving people of child care you know, setting their kids back, causing mental health problems. I often just think That's there's it. a misalignment in priorities. Like the culture war stuff, some of it is frivolous. And then sometimes I just have more moderate views on it. Like, for example, um, like trans issues, I think are, are complicated. And I have kind of a middle of the road perspective on it. And I think both the, the far left woke view on it is nuts. But also like the right can be very crass and insensitive about it. Um, and same with LGBT issues more broadly. Um, I just think, yeah, on some of that stuff, I, I come down differently than a lot of the more like social conservatives. I would never, I've, I've never described myself as a social conservative. Mm -hmm. I've been mostly in the same vein, you know, I'm, I feel very passionately about capitalism and, and certain economic issues uh, and immigration as well. But, you know, some of the, you know, trans rights, not something I would naturally have, um, have on my radar, right? But then it's like, and I had this discussion on previous podcasts. It's like, yeah, okay, you know, use use the bathroom, whatever, you know, who cares? You say you're a woman, go use the bathroom. But then it turns into that to, oh no, you are compelled to address me the way I want to be addressed under all circumstances. And if you don't, then we're going to use the law against you. And, and it's like, now you just sort of see, we didn't focus on the culture issues for, for a long time because, and I didn't. Uh, and then, all these things have been chipped away and now we're having conversations are so far outside what used to be the Overton window and it's like and people just will just react to every perceived grievance I kind of right? though, people like you and I may not have engaged in the cultural stuff but like the right has been Fox mm -hmm. News every single day has covered the culture of story of the day like it's not as if there, there is sometimes this narrative as if we've neglected culture and I just don't know how true that is. I am a policy focused person and I'm constantly 
dismayed at how little policy is actually covered in conservative media and how obsessive it is over culture. Not that I, I know culture is important. I just would like to talk more substance more often. Right. Um, but I also would say that like, I'm not unsympathetic to what you're describing, but the knee jerk reaction tends to take you to the opposite extreme. Right. Whereas if you actually have like a nuanced or middle of the road view that says like, mm-hmm. no, obviously biological sex is real. Uh, and so sports need to acknowledge that reality. Right. And that's not transphobic. But that that's different from a, t- a lot of conservatives online, for example, have really mocked and attacked doc, uh, Dr. Le- Rachel Levine, who is a Biden administration official, who's a, tr- a trans woman. And it's like saying that Levine is disqualified from being in, working at HHS because they don't understand science and is a man that thinks she's a woman. And all these things that it's like, look, this is just a person who's working in the government, uh, what they do in their own life and how they identify. It's an adult. Shouldn't matter. And you're just picking on people. Um, pick the battles that matter, which is things like sensible sports rules and not, you know, irreversibly changing children mm. before they even go through puberty and know what they are. Absolutely. I just think the right doesn't pick its battles enough. And um, so they sometimes lose their, you have limited, uh, what's the right word? Like bandwidth or capability. And and if you, you have limited capital and if you expend it too much on the frivolous stuff or the battles that don't matter, you have less on the things that really do. Right. And I guess the question would be is what happens when saying that biological sex is a reality? What happens when that becomes the extreme position? Right. And which, you know, if you listen on to Twitter, it, it has, media, right? And Twitter, it, it has, media it has, right? It can get you banned. And, you know, I'm still trying to think about this myself, you know, with how, how much, how in depth we have to get with the culture stuff. Uh, because, all right, so the area that the left has had the most difficulty making ground in, I would say, of all the sort of uh, culture issues would be something like gun rights, right? And it's the NRA, uh, not just people, you know, some people in the center even, you know, ha- have distasteful feeling about them, but they've barely given an inch. Right. That's been sort of their tactics. They do they do not want to give an inch. And if they weren't like that, the question is like how far would have gun rights have uh been watered down in this country? And I, I always think about that because when when you make compromises here and here and there, and all of a sudden um, you know, the 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 whole paradigm has shifted and now you're completely on the defensive. So yeah, well, I guess I would say that I think the Second Amendment is a battle to pick because it's a fundamental human right and constitutional right. Uh, but whereas like what other people choose to do in their own life that doesn't affect you mm-hmm. isn't a battle to pick, in my opinion. And you could say that the NRA hasn't compromised. I actually think they have, perhaps. Um, and they've the NRA itself. But you're right, like gun rights movement has not compromised and it's been a successful bulwark but i really think that's less because i honestly think that's because of the constitution and the courts more than anything else and so the lesson there is that we need things like the first amendment and the second amendment that protect our liberties because if you didn't have the second amendment the battle for gun rights would look very differently half the states in this country would have come close to banning guns um and so i think that's the lesson there Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm No, I, I think it's a good point. Uh, you know, people forget too with what was I think the Heller case where Chicago uh, or was it the no sorry Heller case was DC I believe right where they basically outlawed being able to even have a firearm in uh, in your home, right? So th- this whole notion of uh, 
some some liberals like to use. Oh, we're not going to come after your guns. We just want the, the scary ones. It's like, no, you guys literally did this in D.C. And obviously we see what happens in D.C., what happens in California, because these are the most far left places in the country, uh, then spreads into the center left places. So they absolutely do. Um, I, I know you've been following this New York State Rifle Pistol Association versus Bruin case. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background on that and uh, and your yeah. analysis? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the Heller case there, uh, but they had Heller and then they had McDonald's in 2010. Uh, and that established a or, or recognized the Second Amendment as creating an individual right to keep and bear arms that the states and the federal government must respect. But the Supreme Court hasn't been a gun case since 2010. So what has happened is you have this strong pro-gun rights precedent, but then they haven't done anything since. So states have had these ways of getting around it and very much restricting guns, and they haven't been slapped down and told you can't do that. And so that's what this new case about that you mentioned, New York Pistol and Rifle Association versus Braun, um, it's basically New York had a permitting system where in order to get your concealed carry permit, it wasn't like anybody could just pass a background check, complete the paper, and get it. You had to convince the government bureaucrats that you have a special need beyond just self-defense, beyond living in a dangerous part of the city. Uh, and so they were only giving out permits to like judges and celebrities and people who had like threats against them. Or, and it's like, hang on, this is supposed to be a right not some privilege I have to beg the government for. Uh, and so the Supreme Court finally took this case and now they have the chance to review it and slap down these workaround restrictions that these blue states have enacted. And I think they need to do so and do so emphatically. Otherwise places like New York and California and all those will continue these kind of underhanded workarounds to avoid the constitution. Right, this is a New York case, the situation basically identical in a place like LA you need a provide them with uh, you know a special justification, and what's the you know sort of special purpose? Um, it's whatever they decide. So it's completely arbitrary. And so, what other rights do we have in our society? What other constitutional right? Imagine if they did that with right. free speech. Right. Right. Like, exactly. oh, you want to have a protest? Convince us that you really need it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that's not how rights work. But they've been able to do it because the Supreme Court has been inactive. Justice Thomas, who's one of the most conservative judges on the court, has he's written dissents when they have declined cases in the past and said the Second Amendment is a disfavored right. This court is neglecting its duties on this issue. And as far as I'm concerned, he's completely correct. Absolutely. And so we have the other thing is, too, is it'd be one thing if, if you need like a special uh you know, justification, but they don't even spell out what it is, right? And intentionally, they make it arbitrary. They make it, you know, um, basically impossible to get unless you're well connected. Um, and it's, it's completely subject to the whims of basically the sheriff department in LA. Uh, well, what's crazy about now. the New York case is that when you have these arbitrary systems of big government, it's the well-off and well-connected, like you said. So you actually have a coalition of African-American attorneys that filed a brief in this Supreme Court case saying that their clients which are mostly black and Hispanic men got sent to jail over gun charges because they couldn't get these permits that white, well-connected rich people were able to get in the city. So it's like this progressive Democrat policy is literally racist and you have black defense attorneys, not exactly a conservative, typical constituency, 
filing an amicus brief uh, in this case. So it really tells you how warped the system is and how contrary it is to mm-hmm. what the left's stated values actually are. Yeah. And uh, there was oral arguments yesterday. The the people representing New York, they argued against allowing people to break themselves in a high crime area, right? They said, well, you know, we can't, we can't allow this because it's a high crime area. And Roberts, who's, you know, the, the flakiest member of the conservative branch of the court, said, how many muggings take place in the forest, right? So I thought that was a really good line. You know, what, what good is a right if you can't use it in the areas in which you need to use it, right? Right. The rural I mean, areas you have it. Mm-hmm. They say you can have a gun in your home. You just can't transport it anywhere or bring it into almost any public venue. Uh, well, then it's like you don't really have a right to protect yourself. Right. So it's it's the only right confined to your home, basically. That's that's the bottom line. So I, I think this is a this is a very promising case. Um and hope hopefully that uh it, it really uh will be a landmark decision that you know basically helps people who who are most in need of being able to one legally protect themselves, people who live in crime areas, people do business in crime areas, right? That's another one, right? You want these people to to be able to live in these communities and work in these communities and build up these communities, and yet they can't defend themselves properly. It's really disgraceful. Um, and, and I hope the courts strike it down, but if they don't, voters shouldn't stand for it. What do you think about, so here's, here's another sort of interesting issue that I, people aren't really talking about as much anymore. It's going to be coming up consistently, I think, for these next few years, the student loan issue. And uh, I, I haven't really heard any compelling arguments from the conservative side of the aisle. Uh, you know, liberals, you know, people like Elizabeth Warren just want to forgive, I think, was everything over $50,000, uh, sorry, $50,000 or less. Um, I think Bernie wants to just, you know, eliminate all student loan debt. It's a $2 trillion problem. It's massive in scale. Uh, and then it's continuing too. That's, that's the previous debt that's on the books. And we still give out, you know, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year in student loans to people who are going to school for majors that aren't economically viable, that won't aren't connected to a specific industry or job. What what would be the sort of um, conservative, you know, or you know, common sense solution to dealing with a two trillion dollar problem like student loan debt? Well, you have to address the root of the cause, which is why is college so expensive? An insanely expensive college tuition prices since 1980 have rapidly outpaced inflation in every other area by many times. So college is way, way more expensive than it needs to be or used to be. And that's the root of the cause. If you cancel all student loan debt, and let's be clear, there's no such thing as canceling student loan debt. That means taxpayers have to pay it off. Um, but so if you canceled it, another big pile would just accrue very quickly because the system is so broken. So you've got to go to the root of that cause. And one of the main reasons is actually the federal student loan subsidy program. Uh, had, when they initiated it, they basically wanted to make college more affordable. So they created this federal loan program, but it ended up inflating the, pro- the cost of college immensely because when you artificially inflate demand, supply stays the same, prices go up. And so research has found that every dollar in aid led to like a 50% uh, jacking up the tuition prices. So we really need to pair that back. We need to create alternatives to college because not every kid needs a, should need a degree. Uh, and so many of our degrees, like you mentioned, are very unproductive and you don't learn much anyway. And then we also need to actually look at these public universities and pair them back. So for example, they're just run as these like liberal utopias of bureaucracy and waste. 
But if you actually put fiscally conservative people in charge of the universities, they can cut the waste, cut the bloat, and make them much more affordable. Mitch Daniels has done that at Purdue University in Indiana, uh, and he saved families millions and millions of dollars just by cutting the bloat and the bureaucracy and the waste. And there's so much of that on college campuses. So we should also look there. I agree with most of what you said. With regard to the problem on the books, do you think there could be a compromise where we do all these sorts of things, many of which you described, to make sure the problem doesn't continue, but we do engage in some sort of forgiveness? If we can assure people that it won't happen again, I think a lot of people from both sides, well, particularly left, will agree with it, but I think the right as well uh, will say, okay, well, if you can convince me that this is not going to happen again, we'll be willing to um, you know, at least tackle some of these these debt issues that people are having, uh, because it is, unfortunately, it's a, it's a problem that mostly manifests in the United States. Uh, the other, the other countries, uh, industrialized countries don't have this problem and it is shaping people's life choices. It's shaping people's, uh, ability to, um, have to create family formation, delaying marrying, you know, delaying having children, maybe delaying wanting to go out there and start your own business. Cause you have this chunk of money that you have to pay every single month and so that's the, it's one of the things I'm, I'm most concerned about going forward yeah. yeah so i i guess i'd say though that's true for some people but i actually think it's very exaggerated uh do you know what the median monthly student loan payment is i don't it's 220 dollars. so that i mean that's a lot of money but that's not like a bankrupting amount there are some people buried in debt the the 1.8 trillion or whatever it's up to now, um, it sounds like a huge amount of money, but it's spread across so many borrowers, borrowers. And also a lot of student debt is held by people that are now doctors or lawyers or earning a ton of money. Right. So it's like, if we even want to talk about cancellation or relief, it should be very narrowly targeted. One thing that I would say is we should, you should be able to discharge student loans in bankruptcy like you can in other forms right, of debt. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. So mm-hmm. that's one way in which I think we could compromise. But remember that canceling student debt means taxpayers pay it off. And it's actually fundamentally regressive. Most of the benefits from canceling student debt go to the wealthier and affluent slice of society because people that went to college are, on average, much wealthier than those that didn't. So when you take benefits that only go to college graduates, uh, but taxpayers of all stripes have to pay for it, it's actually a negative redistribution, a regressive scheme. So I'm very hesitant to kind of concede that it's as bad as the left says it is. I don't. I think it's a problem, but they call it a crisis. And I don't think it is a crisis, for at least not for most people. I think it's often exaggerated, and they're doing that in part because the more you can frighten people, the more you can get them to go along with what you want. Then this goes to sort of a another issue which we have is a exacerbating a polarization of both sides of the aisle, right? The reason why it's it's kind of an apt subject is you recently you had some conservative writers, and David Raboy was one of them. Uh, you know, I've I've seen Matt Walsh talk about this. I've seen uh, Tucker sort of hint at this, discussing basically this this notion that well we don't really have anything in common anymore, the right and the left. Um, Sarah Silverman on the left basically said the same thing. Uh, and I'm sure there's been several others. Is I'm trying to figure out, is this really just a, a, 
a moment in time that's very heated, sort of like the 1960s, and there'll be a reversion to the mean? Um, or do we continue this, this slide towards basically having nothing in common with each other? And I'll, I'll just give a quick anecdote. I spoke about my last podcast, the traditional liberals on the left, right? The, the, the left used to be dominated by traditional liberals, particularly in, in like, say, the 1970s or the JFK era. Um, and these were individuals who were very patriotic. There was never questions about whether due process should apply. You know, like the concept of, you know, believe a woman wasn't really, that's is ludicrous, right? It's like, obviously, women can lie just as much as men. And there's a thing called due process, innocence until proven guilty. They were the leaders on the First Amendment issues. The, the people on the right actually were the ones usually in favor of suppressing free speech. Um, so this is, you know, the traditional ACLU positions, right? And, and now we're in a position where at least a lot of the elites on the left are the people who have momentum, the people who really raise money, the people who seem to be the loudest voices, the squad types. Uh, you know, these, these are people who don't believe in, in the, our, the foundation of the country. They are, it, it's more than just disagreeing about tax policy now. People actually hate what this country is about, hate the, the foundation of the country, think that, you know, the founding fathers are all these racist, evil people, don't have much time for the Bill of Rights, at least not when it suits them, uh, and are in favor of free speech restrictions everywhere. We hear this when we, they talk about hate speech. Hate speech is not covered by constitutions. Like, yeah, what the hell are you talking about? Um, how do you have a country that's heterogeneous with all these ethnicities, with all these people who have different histories and different backgrounds, different families, different cultures, uh, but who don't actually agree on the, the fundamental values, the, the, the rule of law, what this country stands for? How do you keep that together? Yeah, um, I think the idea of a national divorce is very far-fetched, very... Um, I'm just kind of impractical. And also I love America. So I would hate to, to ever see us go down a path like that. I think a much more feasible solution is simply federalism. The idea of deferring more political decisions to the states, essentially like why is it that we are so at each other's throats and politics is so do or die for everybody? Well, it's because we're fighting over every four years a president that's going to swing the entire nation's politics and affect lots of issues people care about, I think we would have so much less polarization and hatred and vitriol in our politics if abortion was decided at the state level, if gun rights was decided at the state level, if healthcare policy was decided at the state level, if California wants single-payer healthcare and gun control and abortion, and Texas wants free market healthcare, gun rights, uh, and banning abortion, okay. And then we all exist under one umbrella um, in terms of like the only federal issues really should be like national defense, some interstate infrastructure, uh, you know, these kinds of things that can't be left to the states. But all these hot button issues could be left to the states and then we wouldn't all be at each other's throats every time, all the time. People would get to live in places that are more aligned with their worldviews and their values. And also they could simply just move. Do you think that the people, for example, who are in the progressive caucus and the supporters of them would ever be okay with the basically you do you, I do me philosophy? Or do you think that it's inherent in their ideology that they just have to spread their morality, their view on morality, their view on what's right and just and equitable um, to every corner of the country? Yeah, I think 
they do, and that's part of the problem. Um, they, they would not be content to allow Texas to ban abortion, even though they live in California and have their own rules. The flip side of that is many conservatives and Republicans wouldn't be content to allow California to allow abortion. Uh, and so that's the problem on both sides, in my opinion, is the getting away from the live and let live um, mentality of America, which is like, you do you and I'll do me. Uh, and now people want to control each other and they want to run other people's lives and tell, decide how other communities should be ordered and run. Um, and I don't believe in any of that. And I think it is a tall task to try to overturn that, that thinking on left and right. But I think it's at least, you know, much more realistic and also much less likely to end in bloodshed than any kind of a national divorce. Right, right. And I, I think to be fair as well, you know, the people who are talking about this, you know, they would say, well, we don't actually think there's going to be a civil war or anything. We just want to start the conversation in order to- They want a peaceful one. Right. I'm not saying they want- Right, 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 right. Right, but it could devolve into absolutely, war. absolutely. I, I think uh, as you increase polarization, which is where we're at, um, you know, things can get uh, like a pressure cooker and and blow up before you know people realize what's happened. Um, and and that's that's very troubling. As we go forward, maybe in the longer term, I think that we're going to have a um, more try community based solutions for things. Um, I you know I I. I do think that the progressives will never allow it, but I don't think that they're going to have this position that they have forever. Uh, I think at some point, um, and who knows what, what it's going to be, maybe it's it's the whole Web3 revolution, and and I, I think maybe crypto can play a part in this, but it just it'll foster more uh, community-based groups and they're focused more so on themselves. Um, I don't know. It's, it's yet. It's yet to be seen. But I do think that might be the future: is is smaller communities, uh, more focused insularly, than than having this issue right now, where we, you have this entire country and you have like half the country on one extreme, half the other. Half, well, I wouldn't say the whole countries are on the extremes, but there's enough people on both sides are on the extremes, uh, and that that list continues to grow. Right. Um, what are you? most concerned about in the medium to long term in regards to the United States, whether it's economically, culturally, geopolitically, and what's the thing that gives you the most optimism? I think the thing that gives me the most pause is the turn away from individualism um, and towards kind of collectivism, whether it's socialists on the left or some nationalists and populists on the right, people that start to prioritize, you know, group think and mobs and collectives over individuals and personalization, that's something I, I find very troubling and, and hope to push back against. In terms of what gives me the most hope is, I think that over the last two years, people are waking up when they see things like the government closing their business, the government telling them their livelihood is not essential, that they don't get personal choice in medical decisions, uh, that their school, kids' schools are going to be closed. I think people are waking up that government can't solve our problems uh, and, and that the political class is truly corrupt. Um, people are seeing the mask hypocrisy and the, the Pelosi scandals and everything. And so I hope and I think that people are increasingly um, realizing that the government can't solve all our problems. Yeah, I, I think with in particular the, the Gen Z crowd, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I think they're very skeptical about powerful institutions, whether it be private or public based. Um, and that kind of sort of anarchism 
strain where they just think these people are full of shit. They're corrupt. They're not looking out for us. Uh, whether it comes from the left and right, because it comes from both places, in, in particularly in the younger generations who have this feeling, uh, I, I think that eventually leads to, okay, well, why should these people have power for, over us in the first place? Um, and we saw with, with, with Minneapolis, where the whole defund the police thing started, they weren't on board with that, right? Um, so, so maybe people are starting to question, uh, you know, the role that these, people's, that these people play in our lives. And I think Fauci probably plays into that as well, right? Yeah. Fauci, oh God, we could do a whole other podcast. That's him, a whole, if any, yeah, good. If anybody's shown us why we can't trust centralized, powerful authorities, it's Dr. Fauci. Right, the guy who uh, was in favor of funding gain and function research in the Wuhan lab. And not to mention, you know, the role he played, uh, which is kind of recently surfaced. Under his sure, tutelage in the NIH, they were really pushing AZT for even healthy people. Uh, and granted, I need to look a little bit more into the, the actual reporting. Uh, I've seen it a few different places, but it does sort of fit into this line of, of w- wanting to just have this medical solution and, and, and making it apply to everybody. And you can never be too safe, right? It's that kind of thinking. You can never, just, you can never be too safe. You know, masks for forever, um, which is kind of one of the things that, I don't, that they're talking about now is, oh, well, you know, maybe we, we should keep the masks on for flu season and stuff, even though the vaccines are available, right? So I, I have to think at a certain point, by the way, every liberal I know hates masks as well. Uh, <laughs> whether, whether they met publicly or not, they tell me, um, in fact, they do say it publicly. They just won't. Pro- they won't be the kinds of people that will say it on TV or something like that. They tell you if you're in a restaurant or something. So maybe that that line of thinking sort of gets into people, and you know, they realize that these elites aren't exactly, uh, you know, the people who should be controlling their lives. I certainly hope so. I do get it from people also who aren't just conservative. I'm starting to hear it more and more. Absolutely. Well, Brad Palumbo, thanks so much for for being with me. Where can people find you? Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, just search Brad Palumbo, P-O-L-U-M-B-O. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's been great. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.